0: Welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to Tim Taylor about everything evolving machines and robots and AI before the 1950s in culture. We're gonna be talking about open-ended evolution, Descartes' notion of animals as machines, machine and human co-evolution, AI, environment, and complexity, and the web as a genetic algorithm environment, and much, much more. You can find us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics or on our website machine ethics.net. Quick announcement before the podcast we started a consultancy company called Ethical by Design for companies who are interested in leveraging AI in a responsible manner. For more information, check out ethicalby.design. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, Tim. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If you could just quickly introduce yourself, um, that would be fantastic.
1: Sure. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, so my name's Tim Taylor. Um, I've been working in AI and peripheral subjects for 25 years or more. Um, I So at the moment, I'm currently taking some time out to uh, develop some foundational uh, technology which I envisage will be uh, will develop into some commercial um, output later on. As always, I'm currently sort of sitting on the uh, borderline between academic research and commercialization. Uh, so I'm currently also a, an associate examiner for the University of London International Programs in computing. Um, so I, I, yes, I, I have one foot in academia and the other in
0: uh, commercial development. So you've got a, a book that's coming out um, which is kind of all about the early history of um, robots and and um, how that has played out in liter- uh, literature is that right that's right yes it's it began as a exploration
1: it began actually about four years ago um, when I was in working in Australia for a while um, and I attended a conference in Sydney. Mm. Uh, which was a philosophy conference. um, And the the subject of of that meeting was evolutionary thinking. And they were interested in the ways that ideas of evolution had infiltrated various other disciplines beyond biology and philosophy. Uh, So my colleague Alan Doran and I submitted a paper to that conference um, on the intertwined history of biology and computers. Um, and at the time, we were really starting from the 1950s, sort of the the dawn of the modern digital computer age. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to highlight some very early work from the 1950s um, of people writing computer programs to simulate evolution and to simulate ecologies. Um, and there were some pretty pretty spectacular experiments done sort of beginning right back in 1953 by a guy called Neil Sparachelli um, who looked at some um, evolving little organisms in in his computer and he mm. I mean he had about four what was it 4k of RAM or something to play with yeah um, this was like a supercomputer at the time and he was interested not um, as a lot of people do these days in in using evolution as a kind of optimization methods um, As in genetic algorithms and that sort of thing, but Barraceli was more interested in in Recreating the open-ended nature of biological evolution. So using natural selection rather than artificial selection he wasn't aiming for any specific outcome, but he just Gave these organisms the properties of uh, reproduction, mutation, and uh, uh, there was selection. So the the, mm. the ones which were most adapted to their environment and to living with the other programs in his system uh, were the ones which were able to reproduce and and therefore flourish. Um, and he saw a lot of interesting phenomena, um, even in this really small system. He saw cooperation and sort of um the evolution of of organisms which were collections of individual units which were cooperatively uh reproducing as a as a mass as it were um and he saw a whole load of of other interesting phenomena um so that was really interesting work and and it kind of bothers me that that work isn't so well known even now um because this was really one of the the sort of foundational studies of artificial life. Um, Is this um, pre-Conway's Game of Life?
0: Oh, yes. Yes.
1: Way before that. Conway's Game of Life was the 1970 around then, I think. Yeah. So this was nearly 20 years before. Right. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, so that's that's where this all started. We were um, uh, gi- giving this paper at this Sydney conference on work from the 1950s. But in the, the process of um, of researching that, um, I, I already had in the back of my mind, there was some earlier work, um, not sort of practical implementations, um, but people thinking about this kind of thing about mm. evolving machines. And um, even right back to the 1860s. And I, I knew a little bit about that. So after the conference, we then set to work on a larger paper, which would look at the earlier history of these ideas, going back from, from 1950s onwards, is fairly well known, but before that is less well known. So we, we set out to document all of that. And then that grew, we, we ended up digging out A lot more than I had originally anticipated. Right. Um, And so that's really where the book has born. This, what was originally going to be a paper in a journal has now grown into a book and um, it's now finished. The first draft is finished and is currently under review with a
0: publisher. So we're hoping it's going to be published later this year. And it's uh, the title is the Specter of Self uh, Reproducing Machines: An Early History of Evolving Machines, or Evolving Robots, should I say? That's it's- right. Yes, that's the the current
1: title. Whether yeah. the publishers will want to change it or not um, sure. remains to be seen. But yes, that's
0: what we're going with. Is it uh-huh. is it a kind of a, a broad brush overview of the different developments within kind of uh, cultural artifacts? So kind of. Uh, literature and and theatre and things like that as well as um, because you obviously pointed out the research that was done in the 1950s there is it is it Mm -hmm. more scientifically led or is it a bit of both there it's a bit of both um actually yes
1: we i we do go into detail of the more scientific work from the 40s onwards 1940s but um i was really interested in the origin of these ideas and um as such I am interested in, um, sci-fi. So we cover a lot of early American pop sci-fi from yep. the 1920s onwards. You mentioned theater. I obviously mention uh, Capetch, um, Rossum's universal, uh, universal robots from the, uh, 1920s, yep. uh, which had themes of, of machine reproduction and evolution, v- literature, from uh, E.M. Forster in 1909, his his sci-fi work, The Machine Stops, also mm-hmm. had um, some mention of or sort of allusions to machine evolution. Um, and then going back uh, to the 1860s and 70s, um, I've very recently come across some work by George Eliot, which... Um, I hadn't uh, yes, that's not even in the draft of our book. Mm. I need to add some to the uh add a section to our our book about that, so George right. Eliot and various other authors in the uh in the late nineteenth century so yeah it's uh i I want to be quite pluralistic about that, and um i mean i I acknowledge that ideas are often driven um in their exploratory stages, it's often not the scientists that are really pushing the ideas forward, mm. but it's um, works of literature and art, which are where some of the most interesting ideas originate. So I wanted to cover all of
0: that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think I um, believe strongly that kind of those two things interact, obviously, and they, they overlap and they have influence over each other. Um, we're constantly facing... Um, these ideas um, that we created in in fiction, like the Terminator and things like that, um, when we're talking to the public about uh, AI research. And uh, some of these things can be hugely beneficial and and get over ideas uh, or explore ideas, uh, and some of them can be damaging um, in the the way that we think of of, um, these types of technologies. Do you think within your research there was some clear thread that was... um, fed through a lot of that work or or there was some sort of lineage going on there uh yes actually in the book so i should say we've
1: also um got a paper which will be presented at the uh this year's artificial life conference in tokyo uh which is it's sort of a, a little snippet from the book but um we in the paper we focus more on the the social implications and implications for the future evolution of humankind. So there's, there's that too. But um, yeah, in the book, we really um, distinguish four stages in the, the evolution of these ideas, if you will. Um, So the first step um, and where the book starts is really right back in the 17th century uh, with Descartes and As people were beginning to digest and think about the consequences of Descartes' views that animals were machines, Hmm. um, and it's really in that period, so in the late 1600s, that you start to see people discuss the idea of self-reproducing machines Um, so there's some quotes from like the 1670s um, discussing that saying for example um, you might say that this is paraphrasing a bit a guy called Bernard de Fontenelle Um, he said something like you you might say that animals are machines but um, if I put a, a dog a male dog machine and a female mm. dog machine, I, um, male and female dog together, and leave them for a while, um, eventually you'll get a third little dog being produced. But if you put a, two watches side by side, you can leave them all you want, but they're never going to reproduce. So initially, um, the first inklings we see in in writing about self-reproducing machines are really an argument sort of an absurdio argument against Descartes' Mm. views of animals as machines. But um, as you look further on into the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century, you see people start to refer to self-reproducing machines without necessarily out of hand rejecting the idea as obviously false. Uh, So that's step one, really. Um, The sort of setting into people's minds the idea that animals are machines. Step two was Darwin's uh, introduction of the origin of species, the publication of that in 1859, yeah. um, which was obviously sort of foundational to the to the subsequent sort of development of thought of the idea that, that machines can not only self-reproduce, but could also evolve. Right. Um, so that's... That's step two. Do, uh, do you
0: have to make a distinction that um, animals aren't machines at this point, or or are we? Do you have kind of a uh, singular belief that everything is uh, mathematical and that therefore we are machines? Do you have a stance on that sort of thing? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, do you agree with uh, Descartes in, in that way?
1: Um, well, I guess you would. Uh, I would say I'm a materialist in mm. that I do not think there's anything sort of, I I don't believe that there is a, a separate world of consciousness and sentience that Descartes believed. Descartes reserved that for humans. He thought humans were the, were distinguished amongst all animals and having this sort of, um, sentient realm, um, on top of all the mechanical aspects of the body. Um, So I don't believe there's something extra. um, Mm. But at the same time, um, I acknowledge that we know very little about the nature of consciousness. Uh, So that's a huge sort of chasm in scientific understanding um, of of intelligence at the moment. And yeah, yeah, there's, uh, there's some really interesting work going on in Neural correlates to consciousness, and so what what changes in neurons in someone's brain um, are associated with various different perceptions and um, uh, conscious sensations. But that, as uh, as sort of um, impressive as that work is, it's never going to explain why it's showing there's a correlation but um we we don't really understand why it is that that the sorts of things that human brains are produce consciousness whereas um computers presumably don't but obviously not knowing what consciousness is uh
0: we can't say whether a computer does or not Uh, Mm, yeah so to pull that uh, question out on you but you know this is the kind of podcast for that so um.
1: so yeah I I think um, but but that aside um, Mm. it doesn't really come into it's not sort of a a main thread of what I'm discussing in this book because that's really about the evolution of adaptive behavior um, and Robots or machines or um, organisms that are, are able to behave appropriately in their environment. Uh, so I, I'm not really, I don't concern myself too much with that particular question sure. of, of consciousness you can yeah there's a <laughs> uh, that opens up a whole new warren hole of of problems that i sure, i sure. choose to this
0: works so you mentioned the the um popularization of the kind of the evolutionary notion that was um published uh, at the time um do you yes. want to continue from there sure yeah
1: so after darwin's origin of species was published yep. in eighteen 18- so the next step was really the um, putting together these two ideas that animals are machines or machines are animals and that animals can evolve, therefore machines can evolve. Right. And this really happened very quickly um, in the 1860s after the publication of The Origin of Species. And um, so what was really happening at that time in the, the mid-19th century, uh, in addition to the new ideas about evolution uh from darwin and wallace and others um obviously this was coming at the end of the industrial revolution in britain and so there were already uh, before the origin of species appeared there were, uh, people were already witnessing in their day-to-day lives the ever increasing complexity of machines around them mm. and so people we were already worried in the early 19th century, um, 1840s around then, about where this was taking us. Were all these machines getting um, more and more complicated every day? What's going to be the the ultimate result of that? So uh, Benjamin Disraeli had a a Mm -hmm. great quote about this. So um, as well as being prime minister, he was uh, he was an author. and uh he wrote a novel in 1844 called coningsby um which was set in sort of uh, the industrial revolution landscape of britain and there's a great passage in there where uh, the uh one of the characters has arrived in manchester um and looking at the factories and machines around him the narrator says and why should one say that the machine does not live it breathes, it moves, and has it not a voice? And yet, the mystery of mysteries is to view machines making machines—a spectacle, a spectacle that fills the mind with curious and even awful speculation. So that was Benjamin Disraeli writing that in eighteen forty-four. Yeah, uh, which I think is is quite staggering because. Well, essentially, I, in our book, I have a whole load of modern-day quotes from the last five years, mm. um, which are saying pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I mean, that quote, "Amazing 44," could be a contemporary quote, and no one would bat an eyelid. But um, so that's really what the the book and the paper are all about. Um, really trying to uh, publicise the idea that all these debates about AI and um, the singularity and AGI that are going on at the moment um, are really part of a debate that's been going on for a very long time.
0: Yes, yeah. And and like you say, it really does resonate, um, those sorts of ideas with um, how we've been talking about AIs in the last, um, you know, seven years or so. Do you think that there's um, something about that debate that, um, that, was there any crescendo to your work that you found at the time—was there any like re- resolution, uh, resolutions, or yes, or anything that came out which we might be able to take forwards uh, today? You know,
1: uh,
0: that's a really interesting idea
1: um, or question. Um, it kind of actually what what the, our research has shown is that the, it comes in um, in waves. Interest in mm-hmm. this idea, right. so there will be various periods where there's quite a lot written and ideas being bounced off uh, other ideas. And then it kind of dies away for a bit and then comes back and then dies away for a bit. So the 1860s and 70s, there was quite a lot going on and it sort of died out a little bit. There was work in other sort of related topics to, to AI and uh, machine evolution, but not specifically about machines evolving and reproducing. Uh, Then it kind of came back again in the, 1920s with American pulp science fiction and also some scientific speculations in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, then things went a little quiet. Then there was a huge amount of work in the 1950s with people really starting to um, do the first fundamental work on sort of scientific understanding of what it is to, what is required to build a self reproducing machine. So John von Neumann um, uh, was really the, the pioneer of the theory of self reproducing machines in the uh, late 1940s, early 50s. Yep. And then in, in the 50s, we start to see the first um, implementations of self reproducing machines in software with Neil Sparicelli, who I mentioned earlier, and also some simple hardware self reproducing um, systems. Uh, by people like Lionel Penrose, who is Roger Penrose's father, um, and others in the 1950s. Mm. So there was a lot of work in the 50s, but then, yeah, it kind of went a bit quiet again in the 60s and 70s, revived in the 80s. is currently out of fashion because all these other topics of AI are um, in the media these days. Um but the idea of self-reproducing machines and, and sort of really autonomously evolving machines is not really in center focus. But I, I think it is um, going to come back again soon um, as people realize the profound potential of that kind of technology. And also the fact that actually there's no theoretical barriers to building a self-reproducing machine like a real physical self-reproducing machine it's all the barriers are economic and technical but there's nothing theoretical to say you Mm. shouldn't be able to build one so yeah it's interesting it it comes in waves and so there there isn't really any culmination i mean in our paper we're presenting in tokyo this year we um i sort of Discern various themes that um, are present in a lot of these works yeah. about the uh, intelligent machines, the impacts and implications of machine evolution on human society, and the implications for human evolution. Mm. Uh, so there are certainly themes you can discern, but um, but yeah, it, it seems that there's no real combination. It, it comes in waves and then dies down and then comes yes, back. It, so,
0: yeah interesting it, it's interesting to me because it seems like a an idea which is almost um part and parcel of having artificial intelligence having uh, generalized artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence that has a higher degree of of general generality generality, generality mm-hmm. is that a word um generality generality <laughs> um I can't speak very well um so it's it's interesting that it hasn't been a main focus really of recent that we have uh, maybe in been discovering in in cultural artifacts that the possibility of creating something that can reproduce on its own Mm -hmm. is um, a very interesting aspect of that design and and Mm -hmm. what are the limits of that is there some uh, really interesting examples from your uh, research of kind of the limits of some of that uh, at a time
1: Sorry, the, the limits of what exactly? Or the of, repercussions, of the technology. should I
0: say, of um, evolving machines.
1: Well, yes, uh, there were, I mean, so a lot of the, these people in the sort of 1860s to 1940s did talk about what all of this would mean for, for humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, this this was very much in science fiction and other literature as well as um, scientists themselves um so one of the things was that well so the question what is the ultimate end point of all of this of machines Mm. becoming more and more complicated and getting more and more autonomous and machines making machines so already most machines that you look at if you look at all the components, they've also been produced by machines and it's a, a pro, it's an ever more autonomous process of machines making machines. Um, so where is all of this going? And I mean, most people who have thought about this in the past foresaw at least the possibility that the human race would ultimately be overtaken by intelligent machinery. Um, now, that sounds like a sort of scare story, um, at all order. But um, if you think about it, um, let's take Samuel Butler, who uh, was one of the first people to talk about this back in the 1860s. He said, well, um, what would we have to do to stop machines becoming more and more intelligent and ultimately um, taking over control from us? He said, well, the only way to do that is to is to forsake technology altogether and to have nothing to do with it and go back to a a simpler lifestyle, more at one with nature. Um, And he said, obviously, if you think that's impossible, and there's no way we could do that, then the machines have already won. Um, And that was uh, essentially, even back in 1860, uh, he thought that technology had already progressed to the stage where we were um, totally reliant on it to the, to the level where it was inconceivable that we could just suddenly reject all technology and, and go back to a simpler lifestyle. Mm. Um, and so he, he also um, looked at various kinds of progression for our machine's relying on humans to to build their offspring, but some um, that process becoming more and more autonomous and less uh, needy on the humans. Uh, so another question is, what will happen when machines become more uh, intelligent? How will they treat humans? So mm. uh, Butler and others have thought, well, As long as they rely on us for um, some aspects of their reproduction and general maintenance then they're likely to treat us um, well and in fact maybe even better than uh, might be a better state of living than we have at the moment but ultimately um, if we go down that path there isn't any guarantee that these would not eventually become completely autonomous and uh, have no need for humans and at that stage all bets are off as to um what happens to uh to the poor old human race so that's that's one um line of, of yeah reasoning and, and the, that's
0: a reasoning that you found quite i mean it seems like a long time ago but i mean it's only 150 years or so ago that's mm-hmm. but that's that's a, still a very um current idea it
1: is yeah absolutely hmm. absolutely so the, there are other people who thought well maybe it's uh, not that bad. Maybe it would be more a case of uh, machines and humans co-evolving with each other. So um, so, so the machines might uh, be used for things which the machines are good at. So um, doing fast computations and um, reliable uh, work or uh, drudgery, uh, whereas humans would still be required for their more creative um Abilities and and that kind of stuff. So it might be a, a symbiotic relationship between humans and machines, or indeed that that machines may, we might use machines in the same way as we uh, use our limbs. So they might become a, an extension to the body and actually, so a sort of cyborg. Sorry, a cyborg. uh, vision of the future with machines and humans sort of fusing into one mm. so they're different different ideas of uh of where all this may take us but again all of these concepts which are the focus of current debates have really been people have been talking about this for 150 years or more
0: yes um which is uh, super interesting um if obviously um go read the book when it's out is a is a um some things that you would urge people to maybe look at if they were interested in in having kind of a broad overview or or really interesting um, insight into how people were thinking at the time, maybe what books they should read or or what things they should look at. Uh,
1: yes, well, uh, so there's the um, the paper that we're presenting in Tokyo is is online already, so people can download that. Um, but actually, I have just set up. An announcement list um, for information regarding the book and the paper and these sorts of um, these sorts of issues. So, if anyone is interested, um, you can go to my webpage, which is just timt.co, so t-i-m-t.co, and you'll find a link there to an announcement list. You can sign up, and I shall be posting information about book when um the publication details are out um i shall post a link to the tokyo paper um and any other related information so that would be the thing to do also um my twitter account i I tweet about these things so my twitter account is at dr tim t that's d-r-t-i-n-t
0: Great. So, so you said that you were um, you're also creating um, products or services which use these sorts of technology. Um, mm-hmm. Has any of this research kind of informed the way you're going forward with the, those companies? Um,
1: yes. Yes and no. I mean, the, the the company. So the things that I'm most interested in um, for a commercial, sort of long term commercial exploitation mm-hmm. are the ideas of open-ended evolution. So that is um, having an evolutionary process, either on, on computer or um, with robots in of uh, some form or other, which has the power to continually create new and creative uh, new, sorry, <laughs> a lot of repetition there. Um, <laughs> new and creative, they're, they're, they're the buzzwords. Um, yeah. Um, adaptations and sure. new species in an ongoing manner so a, in a lot new of and creative
0: form- manner new new and yeah
1: yes that's <laughs> yes. absolutely yes so people who've tried to to do evolutionary systems on computers up to now generally tend to find that you might get a little bit of um of interesting evolutionary activity at the beginning but then things just tend to settle down into a, a more or less stable state um, so there's a lot of work at the moment in, in the idea of open-ended evolution. Um, how do we create systems which continually um, find new solutions to problems, become more complicated, and yeah. do so for, if you left it running for a year or ten years, it would it would continue to to produce new things. So that's one thing, open-ended yeah. evolution. The other idea is um, true autonomy. So um, which <laughs> believe you get to. There's a company called True Autonomy, isn't there? But it's yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing to do with that. Um, most work which is calls itself autonomous robots these days is basically a computer programmer designing a control system t- to allow the robot to behave um, independently. Um, but the kind of autonomy I'm interested in comes about through evolution and natural selection where every aspect of the robot's design, um, its control structure and behavior has come about through natural selection. So it's been through the filter of natural selection. And the, the goal um, is to promote that organism's reproduction and continued evolutionary success. So um, I believe that evolution is, is really the path to true autonomy of agents having Strives and desires for themselves mm. rather than these things being sort of programmed in artificially as as concepts given to it by the by the programmer. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in yeah, um, in true autonomy, as it were, um, and open ended evolution. So those are the the technical ideas I'm working on. Um, all this work on the early history, obviously, it, it relates to it. I mean, in terms of technical details um not so much but in terms no. of the general ideas uh, it, it's very much related yes
0: yes yeah yeah um and if you don't mind because i i would love to dig into that some more but we can do it briefly um otherwise we'll, we'll dive into a kind of a second uh, podcast length um at that rate with when you're talking about um open-ended autonomy or, or uh, uh, evolution um, mm-hmm. Is part of the equation that um, increasing the complexity of the environment itself, um, because obviously, when you can, I think a lot of the people listening to the podcast will have some familiarity with Conway's Game of Life or kind of simple autonomous uh, so right. systems which um, have a limited um, environment in which to play in, mm-hmm. but ex- but exhibit some interesting uh, behavior. Um, But I'm guessing you're talking about maybe taking a similar environment as a starting point, but increasing both the complexity of the environment and in line probably with the complexity of the developing um, genealogy of the computer program. Mm -hmm. Is that somewhat? Yeah, absolutely. That's
1: a really good point. Uh, The complexity of the environment is a very uh, important issue. And it's something, as you rightly say, in most artificial life work up to now, people playing around with evolutionary systems, it tends to happen in a very impoverished environment, mm-hmm. um, with with very little um, interesting dynamics or self organizing properties um, of its own. And, and of course, in the biological world, um, evolution has unfolded in this extremely rich environments, yep. um, with all sorts of properties, um, and laws of dynamics in all sorts of different modalities. So there's uh, chemistry, there's mm. structural properties, physics, yep. uh, gravity, response. gravity, Yeah. Um, uh, responsiveness to electromagnetic radiation mm. to sound, all of these things. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think having a a complex environment is very much key aspect to this and something that has been missing in in most previous research Mm. but then the question becomes um how do your evolving robots agents digital agents come to uh be able to use that complexity if you've not given it to them from the beginning how Mm. do they discover these different these different properties that are available to them in the environment And I mean, I should say that actually some of the most impressive work on on people creating artificial evolutionary systems has actually happened in hardware, um, where the thing being evolved is an electric circuit or a a chemical system. Mm. And um, people have found, so there's a case where an electronic circuit was being evolved so it was a, a programmable a field programmable gate array um that was being evolved and it developed some unexpected capacity and on analysis um the researchers found that it actually sort of become a radio and it was picking up <laughs> magnetic signals from somewhere in the lab yeah um and so it's it's just that that kind of thing being able to unexpectedly pick up new forms of interacting with the environment. Yeah,
0: um, I mean, it's, it's, in in it's hindsight, just, that seems natural almost. It, given its capacity, capability, uh, its nature, then it has the ability to do that sort of thing. So it's kind of almost like well why wouldn't it do that sort of thing? So that's a really interesting um, example, for sure. Um, yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, and and, and like you say, it's, it's it's a good example of like what could happen um, in hardware or software, I guess, given mm-hmm. the capability of, of um, being able to do something in a complex environment and picking up from different things within that environment. Sure, yes, yeah. yeah. And so with, with software,
1: um, I'm in in uh, using the web as an environment, so having agents um, not only sort of living on the web and maybe living on the client side and hopping around different computers, but also y- using the, the rich information on the web. So that, that would be the analogy to a, um, a really complex physical environment, having all this information on the web, but having the agents able to... To discover that and find new sources of information that are useful to it um, so that's one way another way would be to have a, a virtual world where people interact with it and so that introduce novelty in that way and maybe you could even have it open so that people can design different aspects of the environment so it's a continually um, it's an open and continually evolving environment in that way. So, yeah, there, there are lots of
0: possibilities in software, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're getting towards the end now. Um, um, I was wondering, there's a question that I always ask my interviewees uh, concerning um, AI um, and the future. And that, that's what are you excited about within this area of technology and what are you somewhat afraid of, or pessimistic about? Ah, uh-huh. okay.
1: <laughs> uh, well, what am I excited about? I think I've uh, I've just been talking about that. It's it's really this um, I, for me. Evolution um, mm. is is a great uh, tool that has been popular. It's sort of. Um, the limelight is, is firmly on neural networks and uh, and all of that kind of stuff at the moment. But I, I think um, people are already coming back to the idea of evolution as a tool for for these things that we've just been talking about, autonomy and, um, and ongoing creativity. So yeah, those are the things that I'm really excited about and think there are gonna be some big advances um, in those areas in the next five years or so. Um, In terms of what am I worried about, um, am I really worried about any of these things I've been talking about in the book? Um, It's kind of, it's it's easy to be sceptical about people talking about the world being taken over by self-reproducing machines. And um, it's Mm. certainly true that nothing that these people in the 1860s onwards were thinking of about sort of... um, large scale machines that can reproduce and evolve. None of that has happened yet. I think it could do. I mean, I think, as I said, right at the beginning, that there's no theoretical barrier why someone shouldn't build a self reproducing machine a physical large scale machine. And in fact, there are huge economic um, advantages. There are also massive environmental consequences which would need to be dealt with properly. Um, But if you think about it, if you built a self reproducing machine, you would only ever have to build one of them. Yes. And then it would reproduce. And so there's a possibility of um, exponentially uh, increasing returns if you got it to produce something useful, a product or a, a, um, a, a raw material, um, as well as reproducing you could get those produced in exponential quantities and people are thinking of um, of using this kind of technology uh, to mine uh, planets and asteroids uh, so there, there are actually people in NASA and uh, universities working on this kind of thing right now so yeah we certainly shouldn't discount that vision but also um, thinking about Evolution on the smaller scale, um, computer viruses, these concerns are, are very much uh, applicable to computer viruses too. And mm. particularly now that you're starting to see viruses like the Stuxnet virus from a few years ago, yep. which are having effects in the real world. So they're, they're causing real world damage on physical systems by um, malicious um, implementation or sort of. Manipulation of control systems in nuclear reactors or, or whatever. Yeah. So I think that's it. These ideas and concerns about the how to limit um, evolution of self-reproducing machines are, are very relevant to software evolution and also um, nanobots and molecular machines and artificial bacteria, synthetic biology. All of these things are alternative media for implementing self reproducing machines. So I think it's very easy to think, Oh, yeah, that's a nice idea. But it's not really applicable. It's not really going to happen. But mm-hmm. um actually, I think there are there are many ways in which it could happen, and um, possibly quicker or sooner than you might think so. So th- those are certainly worrying aspects. And yes, I think, it's yes. Certain, uh, so what we try to highlight in the book is that it, they deserve careful attention about how to regulate these activities Mm. and safety aspects
0: yes right um well on a a a low point there (laughs) almost i think i should flip the question um from now on to the the fear and then (laughs) the positive so just just imagine you heard the positive bit last everyone um yes so um it's exciting we're going to make reproducing machines that um have interesting natures let's say um yeah yeah sounds really great um obviously if you want to stay in contact with uh, tim then you can go to his website which is again tim t tim yes and your twitter is at dr tim t d-r-t-i-m-t Great. Well, thank you again, Tim, for um, coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Ben. It's been great. Thank you.